uh, I learned very soon that uh, it's very good to talk to clients before they make a purchase. Make certain that it's going to be a comfortable purchase for them. And uh, I don't want to be in the shopping cart uh, mode in which people buy something and get it and think, holy cow, you know, I, I ordered that online after I'd had four martinis and that may not have been a good choice for me. That was Ward Tonsfeld with a lesson he learned early on in his business. We are going old school today on the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how's it going today? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Please take a quick moment and share this episode out if you know somebody who maybe has an old... uh, fly rod or maybe is looking for a cool classic custom rod or reel today uh, that would love this today we're gonna find out why this is such a cool topic to dig into if you haven't uh, thought much about it today so we're gonna shed some light for you on that click that share button help us out help the community out help us find one more person today ward tonsfeld is here to share some tips on finding a high quality classic fly rod We find out what makes a classic rod classic, where to go to value your rod, and a classic rod and reel combo for less than a thousand bucks. Actually, quite a bit less. This is a cool cool outfit that uh, is totally reasonable. So this uh, today is the guide you've been looking for. Without further ado, here is Ward Tonsfeld from ClassicFlyFishingTackle.com. How's it going, Ward? Very well, Dave. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for uh, putting some time together today to get this episode out. We're going to dig into, you've got a website that pops up a lot when you type in classic fly fishing and, you know, any of those words around classic gear and you've got a a good resource there. We're going to talk about that website and what you have going. Um, But take us back to fly fishing, kind of how you first got, give us a story. How did you get into fly fishing? Well, my father was a keen fly fisherman. I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and uh, we fished a lot. Uh, on the coast, uh, in the coastal streams, and also east of the mountains, especially the upper end of the Deschutes. So I, when I grew up, uh, although there's debatable that I've actually grown up, uh, we moved over to Bend and still fish the same areas. Nice. So you're in Bend currently? Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. And you are you, as far as your fly fishing, you focus mostly on like just trout fishing or lakes or uh, rivers? Yeah, I fish uh, uh, trout uh, mostly, and uh, uh, the upper end of the Deschutes has lakes and a few rivers. I also fish a lot in the Williamson and the Crooked, the Metolius, pretty much what you'd expect. Um, On the coast, uh, I fish the Siletz and some of the streams north of there. The last few years, been fishing the uh, Alsea a little bit more, and uh, I enjoy that. Um, I, I'm serious about, uh, sea run cutthroat and not always successful, but always serious. And I also fish Southeastern Alaska, usually in August and September. What's the, um, and this is good. I mean, there's a few questions I have there on, uh, I'd love to chat a little bit about sea runs, but you know, getting started here just on kind of the gear, you know, the classic fly fish, how did that all come to be? How'd you get into creating a website for that? Well, uh, about 25 years ago, a bunch of guys that uh, I knew uh, around the country, we decided to get a website. And 
you know, get a, get a chance to, um, get stuff and sell stuff. And, um, that worked out pretty well. Uh, over the years, the number of people in the group has fluctuated, uh, but um, we still keep together. And I've sort of uh, gotten myself into the position of, of doing most of the management and activity on the website. Our first website was a very simple one. My daughter, uh, who was in high school at the time, put it together for us, and it worked. Uh, as the uh, web commerce has become more sophisticated, in recent years, I've uh, gotten uh, a an updated website, and uh, that's working out pretty well for me. So I use that um, and uh, try to keep up with new stuff coming in all the time. So, yeah, I mean, I want to just get started off here just on there's a few different words when people are out there kind of looking for the gear. And I have a few questions about the types of gear, you know, uh, and some of the stuff out there. But talk about vintage, uh, classic, antique, all, kind of some of those names that you pop out. What is are they all kind of the same or what makes a fly rod or fly reel or whatever vintage? Well, uh, I, I take vintage as something that's uh, older, that's perhaps no longer made. Uh, I take antique as something that's probably 19th century uh, that goes back quite a ways. And classic, uh, for for our purposes, I think, refers to something that's uh, been around for a long time that continues to be relevant in terms of what people use uh, and that is uh, pleasing. So, uh, for example, a very good example of a classic reel would be a hardy perfect they were first made in the 1890s and they're still being made that is cool that is a great example because you hear a lot about the the hardy for sure and and so is that real the ones that are made today how similar is that real to the ones that were made 100 years ago obviously there are some uh mechanical changes relatively uh minor there's also some changes in fabrication, uh, not a lot of changes in terms of design. The finish has changed over the years, um, but the basic logic of the reel, uh, it remains the same. Okay. Do you deal more with, I mean, I know your website's got classic in the title, but do you deal with more classic uh, gear or more vintage or what, what do you, you know, what's your majority of the work you the term classic is really important because, you know, we don't sell a lot of, of stuff to collectors who are interested in antique items or items that are um, interesting because they're simply old. So uh, we're, we're interested in stuff that, you know, is, is useful. All of our clients want to fish the items that they have. They may not fish them, but they want to be able to fish them. So a reel that is, uh, for example, the old British brass fly reels, you see a lot of them around, they're attractive, they're interesting, and they're also pretty much useless. And that's not the kind of thing we do. Uh, if we do something that's old, you know, maybe uh, pre-turn of the 20th century, like a very early uh, Hardy Perfect, it would be one that is functional, that's working, that's fishable, Although the price of the early perfects is such, so you probably wouldn't want to fish it. What would you be paying for a good uh, quality uh, that reel? A brass face perfect these days uh, is going to run you somewhere in excess of two thousand dollars. Okay. So you know, I mean, that's not 
unreasonably expensive for a reel, but there are probably uh, other perfects that are uh, equally uh, fishable and are available at a less intimidating price. Gotcha. Okay. So, so basically your website, uh, maybe you could just kind of start there as far as your website. If somebody is coming in and they, it sounds like they're not necessarily the, your, your target client isn't necessarily like a collector. It's more of the person who wants, like you said, use the gear. So is that true? Exactly. Yeah. The person who wants to be able to use the gear. Uh, if, if the person doesn't actually use it, that's none of our business, but they all, all of our clients expect the gear to be working, workable, uh, and also, you know, uh, good stuff, uh, as opposed to something that, um, you know, that may have been an interesting idea at the time, but has not uh, worked out very well over the years. Now, let me get an example. Uh, there was a time in the 1920s when steel fly rods were extremely oh, yeah. fashionable. Yeah. Okay. You've probably seen one. And we would, we, I would say that a steel fly rod might be a, a piece of vintage tackle, or it might be a piece of antique tackle. But since the steel rod fly rods were not very successful and, and people do not enjoy using them, uh, they're probably not what we would consider classic, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. So, but yeah, classic is just, uh, like you said, classic is stuff people are going to be potentially using still today pretty commonly. Exactly. Okay. What is a, you know, as far as going back to that gear, you know, what they'd be using typically? I mean, who is your, you know, that target, who is that client typically? That, do you know who that person is that come, has come to your site? Well, uh, sure. I know a lot of them. Uh, and I've, you know, we've kept up relationships over the years, uh, you know, getting stuff, uh, going back and forth with stuff. Um, I recently sold, uh, in fact, uh, a few days ago, a rod to a client in Japan. Uh, he's a international fisherman. He fishes in the U.S., uh, in uh, in Europe, and also in Japan. Uh, and he enjoys trout fishing. Uh, he likes the lighter rods. I had a um, Orbis Deluxe, which is a, a a nice rod from the 1950s that he purchased. He told me that he took it out on the upper end of the Sumida River and that uh, he was very pleased with the way it worked. Uh, and that's probably, you know, not our typical client, but as someone who we've had a relationship with over the years and uh, who's enjoyed our products. That's cool. That's a cool story. What about the, have you seen many of the Orvis uh, River Masters come through there? I'm not familiar with the River Masters. We sell a lot of Orvis bamboo rods and the occasional Orvis graphite or fiberglass rod um, but, uh, you know, our, our emphasis is sort of on the higher end bamboo rods and, uh, the reels. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, so the bamboo is a, is a focus for you. So that, I'm glad you mentioned that because bamboo has always, um, has kind of been a little bit of an interest to me and I don't know a lot about it, but you know, a lot of people I know have bamboo rods, right? They got stuff, they whatever collected from a garage sale or something. How does somebody know if they get a bamboo rod or if they have one right now sitting in their den or something? How would they get a feel for what that thing is worth? What would you recommend they do if they just want to find out if it's if it's uh, the value? Well, the the easy way is to just go on eBay and on the sold listings and see what similar rods have been selling for. Um, with bamboo rods, the condition is critically important. So again, the rod needs to be something that can fish. The ferrules need to be good. The cane needs to be good. Uh, and also, obviously, there are makers uh, that uh, are more desirable than others. 
Okay, perfect. So on the bamboo rods, let's let's just take a dive down that for a little bit. So what is the, you know, I guess there's all sorts of different levels of rods, but what are a typical rod that comes through that you are, you know, the clients are looking for? Um, right now they're looking for rods, uh, that were made by Bob Taylor. And, uh, I sold the last one that I had a couple months ago and I wish I had more. (laughs) Uh, Taylor was a, uh, one of the men who worked in the Leonard shop, uh, before it went out of business in the eighties. He was, uh, continued making rods after that very successful rods, very similar to Leonard's, uh, tapers are similar. The uh, workmanship is similar and the cane treatment is similar and um, very nice, uh, beautifully finished rods. And uh, they're um, kind of enjoying a spurt of popularity right now. And that's just, and how does that happen? How does that become, get a spurt of popularity to somebody? Because it seems like I, I'd imagine there's a lot of different bamboo rods and companies that are not around anymore. How, how does that happen? Well, uh, I'm certain that, um, hey, maybe that's a tough question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly what the, what the yeah, yeah. I mean, I know what, what my friends like and, you know, and we talk about certain rods and we certainly go ahead and go after them and stuff like that. But, um, I don't know what the genesis of the Yeah. What, what makes a Leonard, you know, special, like compared to another, any other rod of that time? Well, the Leonard company was, uh, in business for a long time. Uh, Hiram Leonard, uh, made the first, beveler which is the uh, machine that could make the equilateral triangle sections that are glued together to form the hexagonal rods so leonard didn't invent the bamboo rod but he made it work he made it popular and his uh the continuity of the company was amazing they were uh, able to attract very talented rod makers and they did that throughout their years and um they're probably their most successful rod was the Leonard model 50, which is an eight foot three piece five weight rod, uh, which they started making around the time of world war one and continued, uh, through the eighties. So it was a long lived rod. It had several variations, but I just recently got a, a Leonard 50, which was made yeah, sometime in the 60s, and I was amazed to see that it had exactly the same tapers as one of my earliest Model 50s. So it's a it's a nice uh, piece of continuity in rod history. A lot of people were influenced by Leonard, uh, and their basic ideas for both the three-piece and the two-piece fly rods were, I think, are extremely influential uh, in American rod making. There you go. So that's, uh, they had a big impact. Are you still fishing? Uh, I mean, do you fish a lot of the, the old gear? Is that mainly what you're fishing? Some of the, the older classic vintage stuff? Uh, I fish uh, bamboo on streams. I tend not to fish it in boats because it's kind of, it's kind of, they're kind of rough on, on the rods. Um, and the rods that I fish are not older ones they're generally newer ones. But um, I, uh, a lot of them are, are similar. For example, uh, I have some uh, relatively new Leonard's uh, made by Thomas Maxwell that I like very much. Uh, he uh, made rods through the end of the Leonard uh, business in the early 1980s. Mm, okay. That's a new rod for us. <laughs> that's a new Yeah, okay. So that's it. So the 80s is yeah, a new rod. Yeah. 
if you're going to go out and put together a, a setup for trout, let's just say a, a typical setup rod and reel. And I guess we haven't talked about lines yet, but what would you be going if, if money was no option, you just wanted to get the great setup, what would that be? Well, um, two sort of, of uh, interesting streams in my area, uh, Fall River, which is a tributary of the Chutes, a little bit south of Bend, and the Metolius, which is a major tributary of the Chutes. Uh, for those two, which are sort of typical stream fishing, I generally fish an eight-foot rod, and um, I would probably uh, I would probably choose a bamboo rod for those areas uh, because they're uh, easy to fish. Um, there's a little bit of, of overhanging material on the Fall River, but you can you know keep yourself clean pretty easily there. Um, and I would probably uh, choose something in the four weight or five weight uh, zone. Actually, since we're talking about Leonard 50s, a rod built on that basis or, or one of the 50s would be a good choice. Um, as far as a reel goes, I would probably use a Hardy, probably one of the lightweight series, and um, probably a, um, a Princess might be a good choice, uh, depending on the rod and you know, sort of the way that uh, it went together with the rod. And then what about, do you also, do people look for uh, classic lines and things like that as well? Like the, Maybe that's the extreme. Yeah, I think that the uh, idea of, of using an old silk line, some people have done that. It tends to be a little inconvenient and it's um, maybe, not, uh, maybe not such a good choice. There are new silk lines that are made and people like those. I happen not to like them. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so I generally buy whatever the fly shop has on sale that year. <laughs> All right. Perfect. What, what about other gear? So we got fly. I mean, what other, it sounds like rods and reels are the big ones. Any other classic gear that you, that comes through your website? Oh, everyone has things they like to tinker with and like to keep on their vests. Uh, fly boxes. I think the Wheatley fly boxes are lots of fun. They work well. Uh, and they're sort of timeless. Uh, I don't like the plastic fly boxes so much because they get scratched up and and they're not so convenient. Um, but uh, I don't use the fly wallets, uh, the leather wallets. They're um, maybe not so good on the flies as the boxes are. Uh, so I guess a, a Wheatley box would be something that I would I would certainly choose, and I sell a lot of them. And what about um, what about the old Creole? This is, again is kind of throwing back, but I, I know that people love those <laughs> creels not to use them necessarily but i yes and i'm certainly a great fan uh of the creels they're not a practical fishing tool anymore none of us keep trout uh i have uh several creels in fact i'm looking across at one right now and i think they're wonderful pieces of work and i admire the the ingenuity and the tradition that lies behind them but i certainly don't take them out in the woods no no what's a creel what's a good like what's a upper end upper end classic uh, creel cost or run on eBay? Um, the uh, creel story is a complicated one. They were invented uh, probably in Belgium uh, sometime in the uh, 17th century. Uh, they came into England and France and Germany from the Belgian basket weavers. As near as we can tell, uh, the Scots were the first people to put leather on the creels. And the story is always that the Scots were so thrifty, they didn't want their creels to wear out, so they covered them with leather, which made them more durable. 
um, for our purposes in the U.S., there were creels made in the uh, northeastern states, oftentimes of wooden splints, and those are called the woodland creels, uh, and they are generally not leathered. Uh, on the West Coast, the uh, leather workers around Portland, Oregon, which was a early center of the uh, leather industries, uh, got into making sporting goods as the uh, market for harnesses and and uh, other kinds of horse gear diminished around the turn of the century. The uh, Portland um, leather uh, lofts, as they were called, uh, produced a lot of creels. George Lawrence is probably the best known of the creel makers in Portland, but there are other excellent ones. Uh, and they're probably at, at the height in around 1920, there were probably uh, seven or eight shops producing high quality creels. These were sold nationally through the retailers back east, like Van Lynn Gerke and uh, their shops, and Abercrombie and & Fitch and other uh, retailers. And um, the Portland Creels have a very distinctive leathering pattern. You, you, can, you can always uh, check them out. Um, a, a, a good quality uh, Lawrence these days is probably going to sell for around 500 bucks. And they were made up until up through the 50s. Uh, a high-end collectible creel is going to run a little bit more than that, but um, there probably you can get anything you want for under 2000 uh, and ch chances are something that's really expensive is going to run around a thousand bucks. Okay. So you're not, so there's not going to be a crew out there that's going to cost you, that's going to go for like a 50,000 or a hundred thousand or something like that. You're not, you're not seeing any of that stuff. I think you're pretty safe on that, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take it back to the rod. Cause it sounds like the rods is, is a bulk of what you do. If, if we were, you know, if somebody was coming in to look, they wanted to get, it sounds like the cool idea is, you know, that getting a connection to some of these classic, I'm thinking back to the, the person from Japan that bought that rod and, right. and you wonder, okay, like why would this person want this rod? Why not spend that money on a nice new bamboo rod or whatever it is, right? Uh, or whatever type sure. of rod. And, and you think it's mainly, I mean, why are these people buying the classic stuff? Is it just to connect a little bit to the older or is there something else? Well, there's some technical things. The Orbis rods, uh, the tapers were uh, de designed by Wes Jordan, who was a kind of a... Um, seminal figure in the two-piece rod development, uh, especially coming out of World War II. Uh, and his, you know, his rods are very nice. They're fun to cast, and they're uh, absolutely everybody loves them. The Orvis rods were impregnated with a, uh, a early plastic substance that provided a very durable finish for them. So most bamboo rods are varnished and the varnish can deteriorate and it needs a little bit of upkeep and maintenance and the uh, impregnated finish that Orvis uh, developed is, you know, absolutely um, solid uh, sort of forever. <laughs> so uh, they're fun rods to have in that regard. Some people don't like them. They think that the uh, impregnation dampens down the action, but you know, if you had, two fly fishermen uh, together in a room, uh, there are at least nine topics that they would disagree about. So I don't, uh, I don't take that very seriously. Um, I saw a lot of orvises, as I said, uh, and, and people are, are comfortable with them. They like them. They like to fish them. They feel good about them. 
the rod that my client in Japan chose was an Orvis Deluxe. There weren't very many of those made. They have some very distinctive characteristics. It was a, a rod design that Jordan himself uh, worked on and perfected, and uh, it has a certain uh, feel to it uh, that almost no other rod has. I can think of a few that are close, but uh, the people who like the deluxes, and, and my client is one of those people, uh, pretty much go after them. That's what they want. So, um, you know, it's, it's a rod that uh, wouldn't jump out at you uh, if you were not, you know, uh, if you didn't have a sort of a predilection for lightweight, faster bamboo rods. But uh, once, you, once you discover them, then, as I said, they're distinct. And if you like them, uh, that's what you want. There you go. So, so it sounds like a lot of the people that you're working with are, you know, they're definitely more interested in just, you know, not only using the gear, but they're getting it because they feel like it's just more, um, kind of, uh, resonates more with them than a brand new rod of like, right. Cause you can go buy a new Orvis bamboo rod, uh, right now. Sure. What do you think is the big yeah. difference between the Orvis, say that old one you're talking about the impregnated and the current Orvis? Cause I think the new rods, they cost more, right. Than, than what you're selling. Uh, they do, yeah. The new Orbis bamboos are quite expensive. Um, the impregnation process is different. They're, they're still doing an impregnated finish, but it's a different one. And uh, I think that they're—I um, I think that the older rods, the cane quality is probably a little bit better than what's currently available. And the, uh, as I, again, the um, tapers that. Uh, West Jordan designed for those early two-piece orifices were are pretty pretty distinct. So you've got a a different rod, but it's a, certainly a, a, a very good rod. The quality of workmanship is very good, but um, different feel than the earlier orifices would have. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just get, trying to get in a feel. It's cool. You know, you mentioned the the person from Japan, because you get a feel for why these people are, you know, are interested. What, what would be, can you give us another example of another client you've had and, and maybe a, a different, another story of what they purchased? Um, I'm trying to think of, of uh, <laughs> rods that I've sold recently. Um, uh, this, this last week. Uh, or maybe I'm thinking rods or reels. Yeah. Um, and I haven't sold any to people that I know as well as, as I do know uh, this guy. Um, I have a client right now who's, as I said, chasing Bob Taylor rods. Uh, I've sold him a couple of rods uh, over the years. And uh, he's uh, a guy from the East Coast. And as I say, there's a little Bob Taylor enthusiasm uh, burning back there, <laughs> kind of a brush fire. Um, he's a guy who is, uh, who probably fishes four or five very high quality rods. Uh, he's, um, in Pennsylvania. So he's fishing, uh, the small, slow streams that they have there requiring very delicate, uh, presentations. I imagine that he rarely fishes a fly under a number 20. He fishes a lot of terrestrials uh they have exotic patterns imitating beetles and and all kinds of terrestrial insects that you wouldn't associate with uh with the water um and they have uh a lot of of continuity among groups they're very big on clubs and uh so many of the clubs own their own water there 
So it's, it's kind of a different uh, uh, ambiance than we're accustomed to here on the West Coast, where everyone tends to sort of go their own way. And um, there's, uh, it requires different kinds of, of equipment and uh, certainly a lot of, of different uh, techniques in, in uh, their dry fly fishing. I'm not sure if that answered your question very well, Dave. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think I was just trying to get at the point of, you know, why, you know, who those people are. And I just think of myself, this might be a good example. If I had to say, I don't have really any, uh, well, I have some classic rods, but I don't have any bamboo, but my dad does. And I kind of uh-huh. think about, I could see that if, you know, I was using his rod and, you know, I was like, well, this is, you know, had that experience. I'm like, this would be cool to, I could see myself digging into it. And you hear, you know, obviously bamboo, um, is a popular topic out there. Uh, so sure. That would make sense to me. So maybe I'll be a maybe I'll be a client of yours in the in the future as we go Good. here. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that. So if somebody was coming, somebody brand new, somebody's listening right now, and they want to get uh, a rod, so they don't know anything. They've got some basic graphite rods, but they'd love to. They're loving this story about connecting to some cool rods. Where do they start to learn about? You know, maybe they don't know anything about these classic rods. Where would you send them to actually learn about what they might get if it's say they want to go trout fishing? Well, there are a lot of books out, um, and I'm sort of a book guy myself, so I would suggest, uh, you know, starting there. Um, there isn't a publication that is particularly helpful in terms of a magazine or something like that. There is a very good website, though, the uh, forum, as we call it, the Classic Fly Rod Forum, which has a lot of interaction uh, among members about uh, bamboo rods and other things, uh, all kinds of things. So that's a good place to sort of nose around. As far as what kind of a rod to buy, uh, it's it's almost axiomatic that whatever you buy, you're going to want something different in six months after you get familiar with it. So I usually tell people that you know they want to start out with a rod that is going to be a sort of general purpose rod, and it's also going to be one that is going to be easily resold when they're uh, moving on to something else. Um, probably the Orbis uh, two-piece batten kill, seven and a half foot, three and seven eight ounces is you know absolutely a, a crowd pleaser. Uh, there's always a market for those rods. They're very very durable. Uh, nothing much goes wrong with them. The ferrule, the Orbis ferrules are great. Um, and, uh, they're fun rods. They're easy to cast. They're comfortable. They're a nice transition. I think from, uh, from graphite, uh, probably aren't too many people who are fishing fiberglass right now, except, except the fiberglass enthusiasts. And, uh, the, the, the movement from graphite to an Orvis, uh, batten kill is a pretty easy one. So I was, I would sort of suggest moving in that direction. Also, when you get tired of your Orbis, if you do, uh, it's easy to resell. There's always a strong demand for them. Perfect. Perfect. So that, then that gives us a good start. So the bat and kill is a good, and what would that be, you know, getting into that just gives a, a like a rough idea of cost to get the pick up a rod. And are we talking bamboo or no? Yeah. A nice, uh, bat and kill, uh, which is the two tip rod is going to run you about 650 bucks, uh, a, the one tip version of the batten kill is called a Madison, and that's going to be about a hundred, hundred and fifty dollars less 
there are also some other orbices that are good, but the batten keel is probably uh, probably your best choice. The best choice. And is that now a bamboo or graphite? That's bamboo, and it's uh, impregnated. Uh, they the rods, most of the rods that people like in that uh, category were made in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, and that's you know uh, 30 year span. So there are quite a few rods cranked out during those years. Perfect. No, this is great. I love the, the batten kill. So if I wanted to pick that up today, and that's totally reasonable. I mean, literally, you can get. 500 bucks, get a cool classic rod. Could you go to your site? I mean, is your site set up for actually purchasing or is it more like they send an email to you? No. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I learned very soon that uh, it's very good to talk to clients before they make a purchase. Make certain that it's going to be a comfortable purchase for them. And uh, I don't want to be in the shopping cart uh, mode in which people buy something and get it and think, holy cow, you know, I, I ordered that online after I'd had four martinis and that <laughs> may not have been a good choice for me. That's so right. I, 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 I want to have uh, a, a chance to, uh, get to know my clients and make certain that they're making a good choice. So yeah, I'll be happy to sell you one, but you gotta call me up or send me a text or write me an email and, and, uh, and then we'll put the deal together. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's cool. And then, and then that batten kill would be a great rod, like you said, for trout. What would be a good, um, a good, a reel? So you said the hardy. What, what would balance up with that if you're going to grab a five weight batten kill? Well, um, we've talked about the hardy perfect, which is always a good reel. In the nineteen, actually, in the late nineteen fifties, hardy came out with what they call the lightweight series, and these were lighter in weight, <laughs> obviously than the um, earlier reels, either the St. George uh, or the Perfect. And they have, have stayed in production uh, for a long time, and they've been a very successful reel. Uh, I sell a lot of them. I like them. The LRH is the five weight. Uh, the uh, featherweight is the four weight. And um, they have a Princess, which is a good six weight reel. And so all the bat, all of the uh, lightweight series reels are very similar in design. Uh, they have a lot of things going for them. They're easy to shift from right hand wind to left hand wind. They're, um, the spools are interchangeable with with complete uh, confidence. Unlike the perfects, we use them as if to scratch your head and they still don't fit. And uh, you know, I think they're great reels. Uh, and again, they're reels that everybody knows, everybody likes. So if you get tired of it you can get rid of it. And I would probably with that, uh, rod, I would probably grab a lightweight. If I were fishing five weight, I would uh, probably grab an LRH. Uh, those are the initials of Lawrence Hardy, who was a, a, um, head of the company for many years. Um, and, uh, if I were fishing a six, uh, I would probably grab a princess and being uh, someone who uh, likes gear, I would have both reels with a couple of lines for each, multiple spools, uh, so that if I'm fishing in the Deschutes and it's getting windy at four o'clock in the afternoon, I can shift over to six weights and punch it out. Uh, and if I'm fishing something delicate uh, early in the morning with PMDs, I could use a five weight double taper and make a more uh, genteel presentation. And I think it would be a very versatile and useful outfit. Yeah, no, it sounds awesome. I think, uh, like we said, $500 for a cool 
classic uh, rod and and what is that hardy lightweight what what's that going to run you um they're they sell depending on the condition uh they sell in the neighborhood from uh 200 to about 300 dollars so they're not an expensive reel and by condition i don't mean anything mechanical there's really nothing mechanical that goes wrong with them uh you can get a uh, they have a a duplicated check system. So if you break your check or break a spring, you've got an extra one in the reel ready to go in about two seconds. Um, you might get some finish wear, which isn't going to make any difference. Uh, you might get uh, a little bit of, of corrosion on the aluminum parts, which you can clean up. But, you know, as long as the reel works, there's nothing going to happen to it. So I don't think condition is a big issue with the lightweights. Okay, cool. Now, this is great. So we're so we got a rod reel. I'm curious. I want to dig a little bit more into uh, some of the reels, and we'll talk on fly boxes before we get out of here. But uh, I'm curious on your gear. So if a couple of things. So if somebody has gear, maybe they want to you know sell, get rid of, or and also where do you get your gear? So typically you've got all this gear. It sounds like on your website. Where do you find all this stuff? Well, um, I go to shows uh, before the virus. Uh, I typically did the show in Somerset, New Jersey, and I usually do the show in Daytona, Florida in the winter. On the West Coast, we have the Santa Rosa show, which is in early March. Uh, here in Oregon, we have the uh, Northwest NFLCC shows, which were formerly held in Kelso, Washington. There are two of those a year. I do a lot of the states and um Basically, when you've been in the business for a while, uh, estate attorneys get your name, put it in the Rolodex, and when they get an estate and some guy's got a basement full of fishing tackle, you get a call. So that's kind of exciting. (laughs) You never know what you're going to (laughs) find. How often does that happen? Do you get calls? Um, I, you know, if I get two or three decent estates in a year, that's probably pretty good. Um, Sometimes you get a, a very large estate that's that's uh, from a uh, collector or, or a person who does some serious acquisition. Uh, sometimes, you know, we just just get the uh, some of the fishing items from a another estate. We recently got through auction uh, an estate of the person who was the CEO of the Garcia Company oh, wow. uh, for many years in the U.S. and he was he was able to afford some very nice reels, so uh, we were happy to get those. So you go in there and you you just basically just give them a price and they they take the price and then you kind of get you go with it. We give them a price and we hope they take the price. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, you're the you're the expert, so how could they? Um, it'd be hard to debate with you on cost because you kind of know what it, it all costs, right? Uh, well, I have a pretty good idea of it, um, but you know, everyone asks me what something is worth, and I you know I don't know what anything is worth, but I do know what things cost, so. I, I try to do that. Um, a lot of times, though, what you're trying to do in an estate situation is, uh, you know, give people an idea if they don't know anything about fishing, about what might be appropriate for them to keep. A lot of times they want to have some kind of a keepsake of a member of the family and a reel or a rod, you know, is, is a good thing uh, to hang on to. And so we can help with that. And, uh, you know, we can also work around um, comparable values. Uh, it's relatively easy now with stuff on the internet to, um, you know, just basically crank out a list and say, here's what this kind of a reel, this kind of condition has been selling for in the last 10 years. And 
here it is in black and white. And we like to do that because it, you know, it makes things easier. Um, estates are, are good because you know, everyone you get some, people get some resolution and get things sorted out. And, uh, usually they're, they're happy at the end of it. And, uh, we know oftentimes people will hold something back and they think, well, I'm going to keep this wonderful reel. And then a year later, they're tired of tripping over it and uh, it, it comes back to me. So um, that's a, you know, a very important part of, of what we do. Gotcha. How many, um, how many other websites out there? It sounds like you've had your site around for a long time, but are, are there a number of other classic type websites doing the similar thing? Yeah, there are you know more than ten and less than twenty, and the uh, the guys who have been around as long as I have, we all know each other, and you know usually meet at at shows and con- and conventions, and uh, there are probably you know maybe fifteen uh, of us, um, I would say, and that you know and and uh, given the nature of the web, there can be you know five can crop up like mushrooms after a rainstorm, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> as far as continuity, uh, and the guys who have been at it the longest, uh, like Jim Adams in Berkeley, uh, have a you know huge uh, following of people and and lots of access to stuff. So uh, we go back and forth, and uh, you know we as I say we all sort of know each other. Gotcha. Who was uh, I haven't heard um, Jim Adams. Who who was um, what's his story? Has he just been doing this a little bit longer than than you? What you've been doing? Yes, he, he has been. Uh, Jim is one of the, he uh, was a uh, book dealer. Jim was a fisheries biologist. He had a long career uh, in California and Alaska in uh, salmon and uh, trout management. Uh, he um, retired to Berkeley. Uh, he's uh, has a very strong uh, book uh, business. Uh, he also is a, a longtime hardy dealer and he has an intimate knowledge of hardy rods and reels and i frequently ask him questions <laughs> oh jim and i've known each other and gone back and forth and done business for over 20 years uh, it's a great guy he fishes a lot he fishes russia he fishes quebec he fishes the skeena uh, drainage in canada um uh, he also fishes uh, tarpon in Florida in the wintertime, and uh, he's uh, he lives a very good life. <laughs> yeah, that sounds that's pretty cool. Yeah, and there, you said there's a few other like ten other people doing a similar thing in just different levels all around the country. Yeah, that's probably a good number. Yeah. Okay, all right, perfect. Anything else to know about you know as we start to think about taking this out as you know from a perspective of rods, reels, other gear stuff. You know, if somebody was coming in, they wanted to pick up a setup, kind of like we're talking, maybe a rod or a reel. Anything else you would tell them to get prepared? Um, always a good idea to uh, cast a rod before you buy it. Um, you want to make certain that if you don't like it, if something goes wrong, you can return it, and that's really important. And um, I think that, uh, you know, the general sort of, of, of due diligence on the buyer's part is uh, is key. So if you buy a rod from a fly shop, you know, you know that if something goes wrong, you can go back and holler and they'll probably respond. If you're buying something on the secondary market, it may not be quite that easy. So going with, a, uh, with an established dealer um, is a good idea uh, because those people 
myself included, are concerned about reputation, and uh, that's a big part of what we do. Um, but beyond that, you know, I, I again, I think that with especially in the secondary market, talk to the seller before you make a decision. You know, I, I'm I while we've been talking on the phone here, I've had two calls from people who want something, and I'm going to you know talk to them and see what what they what they want if if I've got it, and uh, it's going to work out. And you know that's easy. But if they want to uh, go saltwater fishing and they want to buy a hardy reel, that's not going to work out too well because those reels don't do well in saltwater. That may not be something that they know. And you know, and and so I think that that communication is kind of critical. What are the when you answer or when you call back on that phone? What are the you know? Are there all a couple of questions that you always ask to get to feel, or is it always different? Is every call different? Well. Um, if it's a, you know, if it's a customer that I, a client that I don't know, um, you know, I you know, try to find out a little bit and not be nosy, but just, you know, find out what their comfort level is and, and, uh, what kind of fishing they do. If it's a client that I know, I mean, you know, those guys are usually two jumps ahead of me. So I just, uh, you know, shut up and, and run the visa card. <laughs> right. It, it sounds pretty cool because I guess I was coming into this thinking, you know, stuff was going to be really a lot more high, you know, more expensive stuff. But it sounds like you can get some really high quality classic gear and even vintage for, you know, like $1,000 or definitely under 2000 Sure. Yeah. So it sounds like it's oh, yeah. pretty reasonable. I mean, I, I would imagine, you know, these people that are calling, I'm not sure what they're looking for, but it sounds like, you know, I mean, when you get these people call, what percentage of those people are, you know, how many people do you have to go through that to make a sale there? Do you find it's more like half of those people or is it, is it, or you have to weed through a lot of people to find people that actually are a good fit? It's usually, uh, you know, pretty quick. Um, and most times, you know, people that have gone to the effort of contacting me are pretty serious about it. So I don't get, uh, you know, I don't get a lot of people who are just sort of want to chew the fat, although I do get some. That's fine. I enjoy that. It's a, you know, inexpensive entertainment. Um, at shows, is a different story. You get a guy who's walking by, looking at your stuff at the table. And, you know, that's not really the same kind of thing that we're talking about from the online sales. So um, I, uh, I do get people who are interested in something which I may not have. And that's, you know, that's always kind of frustrating because a lot of times I've, I've had the item and it's sold. Or I think I know where one might be available, but right. I don't have it in hand, and yeah. you know. And but that's perfectly legitimate. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I really encourage because uh, you know I want people to uh, to know what they want and uh, to find out you know how they can get it. So that's that's the kind of thing that I think produces good, uh, happy clients, and uh, we try to do that. I think I saw a story on Sage. Do you see a lot of Sage rods, classic rods, coming through? Yeah, I like sage and I, I fish sage myself. And uh, there, uh, the graphite is, there are an awful lot of models out there. Sage cranks out a new model every year, at least one and sometimes more than one. And some of those have a kind of niche following. In other words, people like them, they can't get them anymore, and they're always after them. And I understand that. And I don't, I don't do a lot with graphite uh, as far as sales go. But... Um, I think that, you know, 20 years from now, people are going to look back at certain graphite rods, which will be in that category, you know, of, of classic tackle ones that have 
have uh, proven to be uh, good over the years and that have given a lot of people a lot of satisfaction in their fishing. Do you have a sage? I'm curious if there's, you know, as far as a story about kind of a, you mentioned the lantern, some of that. Is there another good story you could leave us with here as far as like a company or, or a company you, you deal with a lot? Kind of an old, some old classic gear story? Uh, with sage? Yeah, I thought I might have saw an article. I believe you wrote out there on um, on a website. Maybe I might be off, though. I thought it was on sage, on like the history of sage or something like that. No, I, I'm not uh, the person. There's a wonderful book on uh, on fiberglass rods by Vic Johnson, uh, which is called something like Fiberglass Rods. It's a, it's a pretty obvious title. And uh, he, is, uh, he and his father were both uh, engineers and both very, very interested in fiberglass rods, among other things, and did an awfully good job of researching the growth and development of, of the fiberglass stuff. I deal a lot with Russ Peak Rods. He was a uh, fiberglass maker in Pasadena, California, and uh, he, he produced some excellent rods. Uh, the, the workmanship was was superb. He was a bamboo maker who got into fiberglass early on and uh, really neat stuff. Uh, another early fiberglass maker uh, was uh, Ferdinand Claudio, uh, who was in San Francisco, much less production than Russ, Russ Peak, but Again, amazing attention to detail. Uh, he got the, basically made the blanks himself on another um, another company's equipment. Um, th- those early fiberglass rods, Vince Cummings is another name. Uh, those are wonderful pieces, and uh, there's strong market for them. And I think that uh, that's something that you might find in a garage sale, and uh, well worth looking for. That's right. Uh, have you seen a little uh, rebound of fiberglass recently? It sounds like you bet. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And some of the makers are getting back into fiberglass. Uh, Hardy has a series out called the Perfection Fiberglass Rods. Wonderful rods. Uh, and, they, you know, they cast like a dream. They look great. They've taken a lot of time and care in in putting them together. They're basically handmade, although, of course, the blanks are made on the machinery. But the fitting out of the rod and the uh they they use a um a ferrule system uh called the tip over ferrules which are later but uh very nice and uh just, uh, just very very attractive rods strong market for them there you go so getting back to your website so you have uh you know rods reels um if somebody's to go there would you just recommend it sounds like just grabbing your phone number and giving you a call if they have questions is the best place is there a yeah yeah absolutely yeah Perfect. Okay, good. Well, I think I have a good feel for maybe a, a rod and a reel. Uh, I was kind of curious, you still had, I mentioned the Rivermaster. That was a kind of an old uh, Orvis uh, graphite rod that was pretty popular, uh, as a, like steelhead rod, especially yeah. back in the day. Um, it was kind of cool, you know, uh, kind of a newly rod or whatever. But uh, do you get much, many people coming in looking for steelhead gear? Yeah, I do. Um, I in the classic stuff, uh, I sell the Powell rods, which are um, really closely associated with West Coast steelheading. Those were um, uh, bamboo. Um, I also uh, sell some other rods that have those associations, Winston mostly, um, but not much beyond that. Uh, steelhead reels. Again, there are some that had uh, strong associations. The um, wide school. Hardy's were a big deal. The Thompson, which was the 
American version of the Hardy Perfect, a wonderful reel and uh, highly demanding in terms of keeping it <laughs> in tune and working, but uh, right. wonderful reels. Yeah, I like those a lot. Yeah. So yeah, there's that gear out there. And there's uh, after the uh, publication of, of some books in, and uh, the, the film uh, uh, in recent years, there's been a lot of interest in the sort of 50s and 60s on the uh, rivers in Northern California and Southern Oregon. Yeah. And the Thompson was, so that real, so you said it looks a little like the Hardy, it's, but it's a little bit more um, finicky. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's uh, mechanically, it's a dead ringer for the, for the Hardy perfect. It's a winding plate reel, but it's got a very complicated check system. It's got a check and a break, both of which are adjustable. And uh, the, and the, the making the reel bankrupted about three companies, <laughs> So the the uh, putting the reels together, you would think something as simple as a fly reel would be a snap, but it basically requires hours of bench time to get the things working right. And uh, but once they're set up, uh, you know they work very well. Um, so there were two sizes of them: a wide spool for steelhead and a narrow spool for trout. Uh, and they're great reels; they're very durable, good finish. Uh, mechanically, they're excellent. Um, of course they haven't been made for about 50 years, so it's hard to get parts for them, but, uh, they're, they're great reels. Everyone needs one. <laughs> oh, so the Thompson, you would recommend that's still, that's a good reel. That'd be a cool reel to have. I think it'd be a great, I think it's a great reel to have. It may not be the reel you want to fish with, uh, but it's a, uh, it's just fun to tinker with, you know? That's great. So that might, maybe that Thompson would meet up with, uh, the, the river master I'm thinking of to get, get an old classic. I'm certain it would. I sound like a, sounds like a marriage made in heaven there. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. I'll have to check back on that. And, um, what about, we, we mentioned a few common questions. Are there a couple of common questions you get, you know, you could expect you might get from these calls today or when people call in? Um, most of the questions and most of the interest involves, uh, you know, the condition of an item. So people will be concerned about, um, you know, what might be wrong with something, uh, that they're thinking about buying. And, uh, that's easy to talk about. What I like to do with a client is, you know, be sitting uh, here at my desk with a rod or reel in my lap, uh, so that I can go through it and, you know, be responsive to any concerns. I think that uh, with the more complicated saltwater fly reels, there's concern oftentimes about getting parts. One of the things that I often have to answer is changing from right hand to left hand and vice versa. And there's some reels that are, you know, set up to do that. It's relatively easy. There are others that you can do it, but it's going to require some head scratching. And there are some that you're better off to send to to Archuleta, Bill Archuleta, who's a famous reel mechanic, and let him do it. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there's that concern, and it's completely legitimate. Yeah, that's, that's great. So there, there's definitely some resources out there, and maybe if people have questions, we could direct them to you, you know, whether they want new gear or have a question about, um, you know, maybe what their gears were or they could sell. But it sounded like you mentioned that, uh, that resource, as far as the forum, there's probably some Facebook groups out there. I'd imagine that are also probably good resources. Yeah, I'm certain that there are. And, uh, you know, you can kind of root around in the internet and see what uh, might work for you. Okay. Perfect word. Well, one last one for you. I'm just curious, you know, you've been going like, how long is this website? Like 25 years? Yeah, we've been out, we've been out there for quite a while. 
Yeah, so like the mid-90s. So what's, I mean, all this time, I'm just curious, you know, what, I, I'd imagine it sounds like you have a good passion for this stuff, but what's kept you going? Why, why haven't you, you know, thrown in the towel and, and moved on? What, what's like, got you still going on this? Well, it started as a, you know, as a co-op. There were, I think, five of us originally, and we all had stuff. And as I say, my daughter took a high school class in making websites, and she was excited about that. And, and you know, it was, it was easy uh, when we started, and also operating a website was a lot easier then. And, uh, you know, as those original five guys have gotten old and, you know, diminished, we all have, and... Uh, and then I retired and have more time to do it. So I, I enjoy the stuff and I'm always learning things. And, and uh, I like, you know, getting something that I haven't seen before and taking it apart. You know, it's a, it's a uh, completely harmless hobby. The fish may not see it as harmless, but, you know, that's not my problem. There you go. So you still, do you still love it? Kind of, uh, you get a new piece of gear or something in there, kind of like you did 20 years ago. Still kind of that excitement. I tell you something, a couple, a couple of weeks ago, we had a NFLCC conference in Portland, a guy that I'd done business with for many, many years, had a, a fly box for me with some Irish Atlantic salmon flies tied in the 1890s. Oh, wow. And I was, you know, I was, I was ecstatic. No kidding. <laughs> My wife heard about it until, until she was rolling her eyes. So it was great. And uh, I was able to get it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that uh, keeps you motivated. Wow. That's cool. And it's, what kind of fly box was it in? It's a Wheatley, but it was a very rare eight inch Wheatley. You sort of never see them. And they were, I think they were used more in Europe than they were over here. Although there were some of them that were sold in the U S uh, through Abercrombie and Fitch. And, uh, the, as I say, the flies were in great shape. They were tied with feathers that the birds are long extinct. Uh, the tire was extremely good. Uh, not all of the flies in the box were some from the same hand, but, uh, probably 70% of them were from the same hand. And, uh, it was just, uh, it was a, a wonderful selection of flies. Did you know who they were from? Which hand they, who, who tied them? No, I do not know who the tire was and the period, uh, there's some other newer flies mixed in, but, uh, the period is a little bit vague. It's, it's probably, probably the 1890s, uh, judging from the hooks, which are, are, uh, kind of the easiest to date, but anyhow, that's the kind of thing that, you know, that keeps you going. You never know when you're going to stumble across something like that. No, that's really cool. Well, I think that's a perfect story to leave us out of here on this one. And uh, yeah, just give a heads up what you have going the next year. Anything new? Or are you just going to keep uh, moving along with new gear coming in? Or anything you want to give a shout out? No. Uh, nice stuff coming in. I uh, just uh, took in a, uh, a nice collection from um, back in Connecticut. And uh, we also were able to buy, I think I mentioned, the reels from the... Um, former CEO of the uh, Garcia Corporation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he spent he spent a lot of money on reels, as hey. you can imagine. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so those are going to be fun. And uh, I'm looking forward to being able to travel more as the virus diminishes. And we're getting, getting set up for our uh, trip to southeastern Alaska, which we do every year. In fact, I'm going to continue with that today. So, you know, lots going on. Is that steelhead trip or what do you got? What's that for? No, we've uh, fished Pacific salmon in the salt, uh, which is a frustrating thing to do, but I enjoy it. And so we'll be 
fishing out of Craig and then out of Clover Pass. There you go. There you go. And will you be fishing uh, a classic gear for that trip? For that trip, I will be using graphite and it will be sage, uh, sage rods, I believe, probably a TNT eight weight that I've been kind of liking recently. And is this, would this be considered classic or no? No, 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 it's contemporary stuff. You're not messing with the big fish. <laughs> yeah, I fish a fin nor, uh, in salt water, I fish a fin nor and I reverse. I use it in the tropics and in Alaska. It's not the most delicate, uh, nor the most trendy reel. And some of my associates make fun of it, but uh, I like it and it saves my knuckles. <laughs> and I, I've been at it for a long time with that reel. <laughs> That's awesome. Or let's go just for a quick, just before we get out of here, a couple more minutes, because I'm interested in the fin or that reel. Can you give us a little background on that? That why that reel? Cause it has an anti-reverse. So it doesn't, when it's, when they yeah. strip out line, it doesn't yeah. spin the spool or the reel handle. No, uh, Finnor was one of the the first uh, people in saltwater fly fishing, and their wedding cake uh, was a very famous reel. The anti-reverse was the second reel that they developed after the wedding cake. They're not as highly prized. It's about a $250 reel these days, uh, but they're extremely durable. Their finish is, the anodized finish is really, really impervious to saltwater. Mine looks great and I've used it probably for 10 years, uh, both in, in, uh, in Central America and in Mexico and in uh, Alaska. And uh, you can't say that for very many anodized finishes. Uh, it's also mechanically great. Uh, when you're fishing from a skiff, I think that having an anti-reverse is uh, advantageous. And uh, so that's why I do it. But again, there's a huge amount of debate about that. And if you know, if fly fishermen were ever asked to form a firing squad, it would be in the form of a circle. <laughs> yeah. What, what's the, uh, I mean, the anti-reverse to me seems like a great idea. Like uh, your reel's not spinning. You, yeah. know, you can't whack your knuckles. Why, why do people not like uh, anti right? Because there's almost no reels are anti-reverse, right? Right. Very few fly reels are. Um, you know, it's one more thing. And mechanically, there's always a concern that something's going to go wrong at an inopportune time. All right. There's a real possibility. Uh, they tend to be a little bit heavier. Um, so, you know, there are all kinds of things that people don't like about them. But for the most part, with uh, heavy-duty saltwater reels, you're going to have to play that drag all the time because you're stripping with the drag off and then you're fishing with the drag on. Uh, and so I don't, you know, I don't find that a problem. But as I say, when I'm fishing from a skiff for uh, Pacific salmon, I like the anti-reverse, and there it is. That's perfect. All right, Ward, I'll send everybody out to uh, classicflyfishingtackle.com. Uh, and, um, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks for coming on and sharing some uh, wisdom here. This has given us a good start, and hopefully we'll uh, connect you with some listeners to the show. Thanks again, Ward. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it, and uh, good luck. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links, everything else we covered today, head over to wetflyswing.com slash 276. 276 will get you the links, get you the good stuff that we talked about today. And uh, maybe there's a random YouTube video over there as well that we, we just tucked in. I'll have to make sure to add something. Or uh, Domingo, maybe Domingo can fire this up and add a cool um, video or uh, a music video 
that uh, that he likes. We'll, we'll see what we can do there. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. If you're on Apple Podcasts, that's a follow, that plus sign in the upper right corner, and you'll get updated when our next episode goes live. And I'm not exactly sure what that is right now, but uh, I know it's going to be amazing. We'd love to hear from you. If you get a chance, send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com. And just take one moment right now and just let me know. I'd love to hear if you're listening, where you're from, what's happening out there. And just if nothing else, just say hi. Let me know you're listening. It helps me tremendously to keep going strong, even when we're busting out two episodes a week. Sometimes not always easy to do. So I'd love to hear from you just to give me a heads up. And um, and yeah, the bonus would be if you have an episode or a topic you'd love me to dig into deeper, I would also love to hook that up for you. I wanted to say thank you again. I appreciate you for uh, being a listener and listening into this one to the very end. And I really hope to catch up with you online or maybe on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. 